0: You may not have heard the name Ed Gein before, but he's probably your worst nightmare. Otherwise known as the Butcher of Plainfield, his crimes inspired some of the most iconic American horror characters of all time. So in this episode, we get to know a little bit more about Eddie, who he was, what he did and how he became one of the most influential serial killers in American history. As we ask, who is Ed Gein? Welcome to America, a history podcast. I'm Liam Heffernan, and every week we answer a different question to understand the people, the places, and the events that make the USA what it is today. Joining me today is Alex James, an American Studies postgraduate student at the University of East Anglia, with an interest in America's obsession with serial killers and true crime. Welcome, Alex. Hello, it's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you on the podcast. Uh, and for people's reference, you do some editing um, on this show, so it's it's lovely to have your voice on here for once.
1: I know, I'm on the other side of the stick, so to speak. I'm here, present, not <laughs> aud- editing the audio, but... It's going to be interesting listening back to my own voice and um, going back through that. That'll be a fun one.
0: Yeah, never an easy job. Uh, We're also joined today by a very special guest. He's a professor emeritus at Queen's College, the City University of New York, where he taught American literature for 42 years. Uh, He's also published over 40 books, including Deviant, The True Story of Ed Gein, and he's a two-time Edgar Award nominee. If you want to know anything about American serial killers, uh, this is the man to speak to. So welcome to the podcast, Harold Schechter.
2: Oh, uh, very glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me on to uh, talk about one of my favorite subjects.
0: <laughs> we couldn't very well have a podcast episode about Ed Gein and not invite you on the show. Um, so it's a pleasure to have you. Before we start, actually, uh, I-, I would really like to ask, uh, out of pure curiosity, where did your interest in... Serial killers come from?
2: Well, complicated answer. I'm sure my psychotherapist would be able to provide you with um, a few of the answers. But to some extent, I mean, what I tell people, I'm a baby boomer. So I grew up in New York City, actually, in the 50s, the 60s. And the culture at that time was really steeped in horror. You know, there were the EC horror comics, Tales from the Crypt, and The Vault of Horror. Uh, I would misspend uh, every Saturday of my childhood uh, at the movie theater, going to see uh, matinee showings, double features of very low-budget horror films. Uh, It was the first time that the classic monster movies, the classic universal monster movies, Uh, were being shown on TV. Mm. So, you know, every Friday night there'd be some creature feature show uh, with, uh, you know, one of the Frankenstein movies or the Wolfman, so on and so forth. So, uh, you know, my imagination was very, very formed, if not warped, by this early exposure to horror. And as I grew older and became well, immersed myself in scholarship and academia, I became very interested in why we need stories about monsters from a very, very early age. You know, that begins obviously with our exposure to Grimm's fairy tales. So, I mean, in some sense, what I'm saying is uh, my fascination with the monstrous and my later explorations of, of why we need monsters in our lives ultimately led to my discovery of the Ed Gein case, which I had not known about. I was actually writing a book at the time about movie special effects. When I came across the fact that both Psycho and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, my two favorite horror films, were both inspired by the same true crime. And I began to look into the Gein case. Uh, I ultimately wrote my book Deviant, and one thing led to another. And instead of the career I had envisioned for myself, which was writing obscure articles on stories by Nathaniel Hawthorne uh, for small literary magazines, I ended up being surprised a specialist in serial murder.
0: I feel like that segued nicely into our conversation about Gein. Uh, and as you say, uh, you know, I think there is there is a fascination with the monstrous that stems from our, our mm-hmm. curiosity into serial killers that Ed Gein, forms a nice uh, uh, discussion around because, of course, Ed Gein himself isn't that famous, but a lot of the characters that he's inspired are very, very um, famous. But before we get into all the grisly details of Ed Gein's crimes and his legacy, let's take it back. So I wonder, Harold, if you could give us a bit of the, uh, sort of the origin story of Ed Gein. What was his sort of childhood and, and growing up like?
2: Well, again, a lot of his childhood is shrouded in mystery. You know, one thing about infamous serial killers is... Until they become infamous, uh, they're basically (laughs) non-entities. So, you know, there's not a lot of information. But what we do know is that he was raised after his family moved in this very remote Wisconsin town called Plainfield. Uh, And his parents moved to a farmhouse that was some miles away from the town center. And uh, again, the dominant figure in his life was his mother Augusta, who was fanatically religious, obsessed with the idea that the world around her was in a state of extreme moral decadence, uh, wanted to shield Eddie, you know, from all these evil influences, most of which had to do in her mind with women and sex. When Edgeen's father died, Edge's father, from what we know, was an abusive alcoholic. Uh, Gein had a brother, Henry, who died under mysterious circumstances. So at some point uh, in his, I guess, early adulthood, uh, mid adulthood, Gein was left alone with this fanatical, controlling, manipulative woman who filled his mind you know, with all kinds of terrors about the opposite sex. And when Augusta died, Gein was left living alone in this ramshackle farmhouse. And at that point, well, he initially tried to exhume the corpse of his mother and bring it back to the farmhouse with him, You know, much as Norman Bates does in Psycho. But the soil in that part of Wisconsin is very, very sandy. So many um, coffins are laid to rest in cement line crypts. And that was the case with Augusta. So he was unable to get to her coffin. So at that point, he started reading the local obituaries. And whenever some woman of his mother's approximate age, somebody who might vaguely have resembled his mother, uh, on, the, on the night of their burials, he would go into the graveyard, dig up the coffin, bring the body back to his farmhouse and perform all of these atrocities on their corpses. He would dissect the corpses, uh, dismember the corpses. He would make various kinds of artifacts out of their body parts. You know, I always think of him, Kind of as an outsider artist <laughs> you know <laughs> he's sort of a do-it-yourself home guy um you know who would make his own chairs and lampshades and so on but you know his primary raw material was um human remains so you know he made a lampshade out of human skin and he, he made his soup bowls out of the top halves of the and so on but, you know some of that uh, uh, He was inspired to do some of that by the um, revelations about Nazi atrocities that were just coming out of the time. Uh, And then very notoriously, he made a skin suit and uh, he reportedly would dress up in this skin suit and pretend to be his own mother. Uh, You know, what used to be called a transvestite, uh, except not a man dressing up in women's clothing, but a man dressing up in women's skin. That is where Thomas Harris got the idea for his character, Buffalo Bill in Signs of the Lambs, uh, which had not yet come out when I wrote my book. And then finally, his uh, atrocities were discovered and it became this huge nationwide sensation. We're going to talk a lot more about the
0: actual crimes um, in a second, but I really, before we continue, wanted to pick up on this notion of the relationship with his mother that you that you talked about there and Psycho really latched onto that and made the sort of the mother-son relationship uh, quite a terrifying thing. So, Alex, I wonder if you could speak a little bit on that and how, you know, how that sort of mother-son relationship um, became a sort of staple character trait of horror villains.
1: Mm, absolutely. Well, as Harold has already said, Gene and Psycho are so interlinked. The resemblance between Psycho and the life and crimes of Gein is unparalleled. It's very clear that Psycho took a lot of influence from Gein. And I think what's really important when we're looking at the mother and son relationship in the horror genre specifically is this two-way street of obsession that takes place. So Barbara Creed and Sarah Arnold are two of the key scholars in the maternal horror genre in academia. And they both largely agree that Psycho is the birthplace of the academic setting for discussions around maternal horror. And they both discuss this idea of the archetype of the bad mother. The bad mother in the horror film is abusive. She's narcissistic. But what's really important is that despite being incredibly abusive towards her children, she's also incredibly codependent on them. And this is very particular with mothers and sons, less so with mothers and daughters, but specifically mothers and sons. So this this obsession of the mother with the son and the son with the mother, you can see it all over in Psycho, right? So Norman preserves the image of his mother by keeping her room exactly as it was before she died. It's the only bit of the house that has a lot of like regalia associated with it. It's very done up and well done when the rest of the house looks quite disheveled. And this is, I suppose, in the same way that Gein would preserve parts of his house as sort of a shrine to his mother after her death. Also, we know that Gein's mother was very verbally abusive towards him. Throughout the whole of Psycho, we hear Norma verbally abusing Norman until, of course, the final twist, of course. But um, what's really important to note is that the amount of control Norma has over Norman and how... It extends beyond the grave and it affects his day-to-day life. And this is ultimately what transforms him into a monster and a killer. It's this obsession his mother had with keeping him safe and contained and staying away from women and sex and essentially from growing up. She kept him as a child for his, his whole life. And this altered his psyche and made him into a killer. He couldn't cope when his mother died. So he takes on the form of his mother to basically enact his mother's
2: wishes. So um, before I lose my train of thought, a couple of things. So we all know that Psycho, you know, was uh, uh, originated as an, a novel uh, by the horror writer, Robert Block. And at the time the the Gein crimes were discovered, Block was living in uh, Wisconsin, not far from Plainfield. Uh, and of course, newspaper front pages were all filled with the Gein stuff. And, you know, and of course this was the heyday of, uh, you know, Freudian psychoanalysis in the United States. So immediately the whole Oedipal thing, you know, became the central uh, explanation uh, for Gein's crimes. And uh, one other thing, just again, a little off the track, you know, in my book, Deviant, I never use the phrase serial killer because Gein, we know, murdered two women, Um, but he really doesn't match the profile uh, of what we think when we think of the the you know the classic serial killers of the '80s and so on and so forth, Ted Bundy and John Wayne Gacy and Jeffrey Dahmer and all those people, you know these were really what used to be called lust murderers, you know extreme sexual sadists who derive their perverse pleasure from torturing and murdering excuse me helpless victims, which is not Gein's modus operandi. You, you know Gein was essentially a necrophile. Who again would dig up these corpses that vaguely reminded him of his mother and disassemble them? You know, there was some effort. You know, it was complex. He was, on the one hand, trying to resurrect his mother, even trying to become his mother, as Alex was saying, but also inflicting, you know, these terrible mutilations uh, on the female body. So, you know, he's a little different, you know, from what the term serial killer the type of criminal that the term serial killer was initially coined to describe you know he's sui generis i mean you know that's what makes him so fascinating uh, and the other thing i just wanted to say <laughs> was yeah alex is totally right you know in addition to american literature i taught for 42 years of called, a of course called myth and archetype and what you see in all these um films that alex has written about and was just talking about you know, is this archetypal image of what's called the terrible mother, you know, the devouring mother. And that's a central figure, you know, in, in contemporary contemporary horror. And again, one of the attributes of the terrible mother is precisely, you know, keeping her offspring in this infantilized state, um, which was very, very pronounced in the game case. I mean, I think... What makes it also unnerving,
1: and I think this is what really keys in with this idea of good and bad mothers as archetypes, is that I never feel like it's necessarily about the mother themselves. It's about what they've done to their children to turn them into killers or in some way monstrous. That feels yeah. like, especially when you watch it for the medium of a film, it feels unnerving because it's almost sacrilegious. It's almost a, a twisting of what and a perversion of what feels natural. And I think that's mm-hmm. why Psycho is so terrifying is because Norman Bates is ultimately, he looks very normal, but when you, by the time you finish the film, you know there's this deep, horrible darkness inside of him and a capacity for great evil inside of him, which has been mm-hmm. perversed and changed by his mother. And seeing the mother within him come to the forefront by physically dressing as her, despite her being dead, it's just very, it's quite, it's very unnerving to watch. Oh, yeah.
0: And I think, you know, what would be really good to do is to sort of pick apart the fact from the fiction here a bit, because one of the reasons why discussing Ed Gein can be a bit problematic is that we do talk about him through um, Psycho and through Silence of the Lambs and through Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But there is a fictionalization there, there's a dramatization. Although the crimes, as you've said, Harold, you know, you've sort of run through some of the things he did, they're quite. <laughs> they're quite bad for want of a better word. Um, There's a certain amount of creative license that goes into fictionalizing that into characters like Norman Bates. So I wonder if uh, maybe Alex, you could kind of run through some of these pop culture references and, and start to discern the truth from the, from the myth. Yeah, sure. I
1: mean, mean, where to begin? (laughs) Um, As mentioned, the ones that really come to mind is, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I mean, a chainsaw-wielding maniac within a family that adorns its walls and house with human remains and body parts. I mean, the link is quite clear to Gein. But I think specifically as well with um culturally, he's been coined Leatherface, the chainsaw-wielding maniac in the film. He wears a leatherface, which is, of course, a cut-off human skin face. Um, and of course, in Gein's house, they did find you'll have to remind me harold uh, they did find the face of a woman i forget exactly which woman it was
2: well they found uh, i mean they found a number of these uh, faces that had been flayed off <coughs> excuse me these women's skulls and Gein, uh, whose father had worked in a leather tannery you know understood the process of you know turning hide and skin into leather so i mean they they had a he had a number of these uh, face masks mm-hmm. warning his walls.
1: Yeah. And that's a very present icon when people think back to Chex- Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And there are other things as well, like there's definitely a motherly obsession in Chainsaw Massacre. They keep the corpse of the mother in the house as a sort of shrine to commemorate the matriarchal figure of the house. Uh, again, we can link that back to Gene and Psycho with the memorialization of the mother in some form. What, always, what interests me about Texas Chainsaw Massacre though, as having been influenced by Geen is, characters like Leatherface and just the film itself, it's, it's a slasher flick, right? It's, it's a film that revels in pure violence. And when you look at characters like Leatherface, there's only anger, aggression and bloodiness. And I was thinking about this earlier, when we are talking about Gein in particular, This is just a thought, it might speak to the American conscience, who maybe when they look at the actions of Gein and the horrific things that happened in his house and what they found in his house, there doesn't seem, on the surface at least, to be any rhyme or reason to it. Obviously there are reasons, but I imagine just off the top of it, American people probably couldn't really process what was happening, so it just comes off as
2: just mad and insane violence. Yeah. Well, I have a few things to say about that. Um, So first of all, well, it is impossible to process, you know, the Gein story at any time. But what interested me was the way each of the movies, you know, most directly inspired by Gein, again, transformed uh, the facts of the case uh, into these myths that really reflected all kinds of fears and anxieties uh, of the moment. You know, Psycho, which came out in 1961. You know, 1961, as Philip Larkin said, you know, the 60s didn't begin until 1963. So 1961 was still the 50s, and Psycho in many ways is really a movie about the 50s, you know, because the 1950s in the United States was this very schizoid era, you know, on the one hand, you have the, the mainstream culture, which was all, you know, happy days and you know everybody living in a nice suburban house with all the modern appliances and so on and so forth. But but there was this very, very dark, sleazy, really underculture of uh, detective magazines and softcore pornography and, and everybody knew, you know, sexual stuff was going on, but you had to pretend it wasn't. You know, so on the one hand, you had, let's say, you know, the great... Uh, icon of of American purity was somebody like Doris Day, you know, playing these pure virginal women. But then there was this dark underside. And Psycho is all about that duality. You know, Psycho begins with this scene, you know, where the camera overlooks, you know, downtown Phoenix, and it goes into this window where this couple is having this illicit sexual tryst, uh, which would have been very taboo. In the in the in the fifties, it's all about doubleness, duplicity. You know what's going on behind the scenes with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You know, Toby Hooper's first movie, the title of which now, uh, in my encroaching dementia, has escaped me, was a a, a a movie about the anti-war protests. You know, it was about hippies. You know, and to me, Texas Chainsaw Massacre always seemed to be about you know the savage, violent underbelly of American culture, you know, this country that was sending its kids off, you know, to be butchered, you know, reflects what was going on, you know, uh, and if you know the, you know, the uh, TV show that was very popular, Bonanza, about this family of four guys living in the Old West, uh, they're all heroic and clean cut, you know, Texas Chains of Massacre is like the flip side of Bonanza, you know, this American family of cannibals, You know, America chewing up its own children. And to me, science of lambs actually has a lot to do with the obsession about body modification, you know, that started to grip American culture at the time. You know, people, particularly women back then, subjecting themselves to all kinds of surgical procedures to make themselves beautiful, because that's what really drives Buffalo Bill. You know, I don't remember what's in the movie, but in the novel, Sounds of Lambs, Buffalo Bill's last words after Clarice Starling shoots him are, how does it feel to be so beautiful? You know, he he wants to turn himself, he's, you know, going to mutilate these female bodies to achieve some sick idea of beauty. So what I'm saying is, you, you know, the Gein story is so incredibly adaptable, you know, to the particular, you know, particular anxieties and fears and unacknowledged fantasies, dark fantasies that are rife in the culture at any particular moment. I mean, that's what's so fascinating to me about the Gein case. So why, why
0: is it that you think that there hasn't been uh, another iconic horror villain since Buffalo Bill based on Gein? Because we had Bates in the 60s, we had Leatherface in the 70s, we had Buffalo Bill in the 90s. Um, do you think that iconic horror villains based on Gein have sort of dried up a bit, you know, or does that mean that that his crimes aren't resonating as much now as they did then?
2: Well, I mean, I think they're resonating in the sense people are still fascinated by him, but yeah, that's a question I often think about, not just in terms of Gein, but in terms of the horror genre in general. You know, it almost seems as though every monster has been, (laughs) you know, has been so exploited that it's hard to know you know, what the, you know, the monsters, you know, the other thing about the Gein case is that uh, up until Psycho, all these horror movies, again, speaking as, you know, somebody from the United States had to do with foreign monsters, you know, monsters that came from elsewhere, you know, Eastern Europe or outer space, you know, or, or they, you know, in the case of, well, I was going to say the thing, he comes from outer space. You know, so the Dracula, the Wolfman, Frankenstein. You know, Gein, Psycho really Americanized horror. You know, Norman Bates was the first really all-American monster. So in addition to giving rise to the whole slasher genre, I always think of Ed Gein as the Walt Whitman of horror in the sense of Walt Whitman was the first person to create a distinctively American poetry. And Ed Gein inadvertently, you know, gave rise to the first distinctively American form of horror. Ah, Back to your question. Yeah, I I actually spend a lot of time thinking about that. You know, it seems like all the monsters, you know, there was a period when nobody had been exposed to Dracula or Frankenstein or the Wolfman or Hannibal Lecter. You know, Hannibal Lecter is, you know, is a genuinely mythic figure. I think Hannibal Lecter, that was Thomas Harris's lasting achievement and I I I don't know I mean I I I just don't know you know what the next you know part of the problem is nothing is taboo anymore you know all these monsters were incarnation of taboo fantasies you know Dracula if you read Bram Stoker's Dracula it's all you know it's it's all about uh you know it's all about forbidden sexual fantasies The, the cases I gave with Gein You know, we live in an era where nothing is taboo. You know, you can just click on your computer. I mean, you see everything that in the past, you know, for example, going to a freak show. You know, there's a time when you had to cross over a threshold and enter into this space where you were confronted with the unspeakable. That's all gone. You know, to me, one of the things that makes Psycho such a great movie, the whole, you know, logic of horror movies is you are propelled to some ultimate encounter with the unspeakable. And most horror movies, they're great until you get up to that last scene because then you see the monster and some guy in a monster suit or whatever. Psycho is one of the few movies I can think of which really pays off. (laughs) You know, that scene where she descends... And, you know, the chair turns around. I mean, that's, you know, and and you are confronted, again, with the unspeakable, the unprocessable. But nowadays we live in a world, you know, where you can just see anything instantly online. So I don't know what effect that is going to have on the future of horror.
0: Well, I I wonder if that, you know, Ed Gein uh, really inspired this internalization of, of the horror. But I wonder now if we've moved on more from just, horror being realistic to literally real life when you look at our sort of modern day fascination with true crime and hopefully that'll send a few listeners to this podcast episode as well but you see it everywhere you know people just want documentaries now they want to know who the real people are that seems to be where the fascination is and yet I do wonder because the Gein brand itself has never really made it to Netflix or you know in the same way that sort of And I wonder, Alex, if you know why that is. You know, because there's a fascination with true c- crime, but not necessarily with Gene. Yeah, I mean, I've had, I've had, I've had a little stab
1: at this. So I'll admit, like I imagine, quite a few people, I didn't know who Gene was before doing some research for this podcast. And what I realized was, you you just have to surf the internet for a little bit. Everything that's on the surface of the internet, without too much deep dive, is all about the skin, the things they found in his house, the dis- the dismemberment, a lot of the, the gory stuff. Um, but when I consider true crime shows more recently, such as ones on Netflix, it seems like most of these true crime shows are more concerned with, yes, they pull people in with the, the crimes that these people have committed. But they're also really interested in showing them to be more than just monsters, but also people and humanizing them. The one example I would like to point out is the recent Dharma TV show, which not only chronicles his horrible acts of violence, but his whole life from beginning to end, the good and the bad, his family life. And by the end of the show, having finished it, I felt that the show was trying to not give a reason for his actions, but to make the audience sympathize with his actions and I think when people think of Gein they don't see beyond the violence without doing some deeper research but having said that Dharma received a lot and I mean a lot of backlash at the time for even existing or showing or showing the events of what happened in a sympathetic light towards Dharma many people cited the reaction of families of his victims how they felt about the whole situation, having their children's murderer be presented on screen in a humanistic fashion. And well, more than that, I also remember during that year's Halloween, there were many people dressing up as that particular rendition of Dharma uh, that many people found to be quite insulting considering his activities and his past. But I think it also speaks to the reality of being a true crime enjoyer. It's a, To be a, a true crime enjoyer is very macabre. <laughs> it's 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 to revel in sort of the grotesqueness of serial killers actions but at the core of it is having a fascination with those people that's what drives true crime tv shows is it's not just the crimes themselves but it's about trying to understand and as an audience to process what would drive a person to do those things that's the real uh, meat and potatoes of true crime dramas is they're trying to get at the core of what those people were thinking and why they did what they did. So yeah, I suppose it does it does surprise me that Gein is not more mainstream than than he is. It doesn't seem to me that it's anything to do with time. So for instance, if we consider Dharma and Bundy, I mean, Dharma's murders largely took place between 78 and 91 and Bundy largely between 74 and 78. Ed Gein was only really widespread had widespread notoriety in about 1957 I believe so maybe you could see his crimes as taking place before a big boom in that sort of like prolific killer moment in American history but I don't really know if that holds up too too much because one of the most notorious killers of all time is Jack the Ripper (laughs) and he was around in 1888 and is still widely known and spoken about today so you know I wouldn't be surprised if we saw an Ed Gein show appear in the future, but I think it would be met with an awful lot of backlash and people not wanting a TV showrunner to present such a character in a humanizing or sympathetic light that tries to understand where he was coming from or the life that he lived.
2: Well, I have many things to say in response to that. First of all, you (laughs) will be seeing that show because there's a big four-part Ed Gein series uh, that is going to be premiering on one of the streaming services. I forget which one, this Halloween. Uh, I was invited to take part in that. One of the fascinating things about it was the producers, I forget how this happened, but they somehow have gotten hold of, a, of an audio tape Uh, of Ed Gein's first confession, which no one until very recently even knew existed. So yeah, Gein will be, um, yes, he, there's, as I say, gonna be this four, I guess, four hour show uh, in four separate parts uh, this Halloween. You know, in the US, I mean, I think Gein's pretty well known. I think I mentioned to Liam a couple of years ago, I did this graphic novel with a a well-known comic book artist named Eric Powell on the Gein story. You know, and the response was very gratifying. I mean, there are people who, you know, are still very much obsessed with the Gein story. The thing about Gein is, you know, it is possible to feel sympathetic for Gein. You know, he's not, as I said before, he he wasn't, you know, a a, a sadistic sex killer. You know, you can't be, you know, sympathetic to somebody like Bundy. I mean, you know, the torture that he inflicted on these helpless young women is so appalling you know that it's impossible to see him ultimately as anything other than a monster you know Gein did murder two women again not condoning that but but you know he, he executed them he basically killed them because you know the graveyards were running out of middle-aged women that he could dissect but he wasn't into you know the horrendous kind of torture so that combined with what we know about his, other, his own credibly abusive upbringing You know, it does allow us to feel a certain degree of sympathy for him. But I I do want to take issue or at least comment on something Alex said about the true crime fascination. First of all, important to realize, you know, there's nothing new about the true crime genre. You know, literally one of the first books to come off the Gutenberg press was a true crime book. And literally in the United States, the first printed book after the English Puritans came over here, the first books were essentially true crime books. So, and before, you know, mass literacy, there were these murder ballads. You know, every time a sensational crime happened, somebody would turn it into a murder ballad. So we've always been fascinated by true crime. And, you know, to me, to say, uh, you know, that it's primarily because we want to understand the workings of the killer's mind is a bit of a rationalization. To me, what it all has to do with is, you know, Plato says, the virtuous man dreams what the wicked man does. You know, all of us have what Jung calls the shadow side that revels in the dark and the forbidden and the taboo. So what, you know, true crime allows us on some unacknowledged level to vicariously indulge in the worst, most unimaginable fantasies while at the same time relieving us of the accompanying guilt by getting to see, you know, applaud the monster's punishment. And, you know, I don't see any purpose in averting one's eyes from the darkest aspects of all our natures. You know, I, th- I think that has to be acknowledged. You know, there is something intrinsically sensationalistic and taboo and forbidden, you know, about this fascination. You know, in a, in a way, Uh, You know, I think true crime is one of the forms, one of the ways that society has evolved to let law abiding, moral, God fearing people, you know, to ventilate, you know, these very dark fantasies. You know, Stephen King says in one of his books, Stephen King uses the metaphor, you know, he says, deep down inside of us. There's a trap door, and when you lift it up, there are these ravening alligators. And every now and then, you got to lift it up and throw the alligator a piece of meat. You know, the whole logic of horror movies is, as I said before, you're, 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 you're veering off the straight. You know, D.H. Lawrence says, the soul of man is a dark forest. You know, there are all kinds of monsters in those woods. You know, we're all brought up to walk a very straight and narrow path, but you need to go into those woods every now and then you know, and confront the monsters out of there, which, you know, are the monsters inside of you. If you ever see the movie, if you ever saw the movie Forbidden Planet, the scientist unleashes monsters from the id, right? You know, all that stuff is in us, and true crime allows us to, you know, let off some steam, so.
0: Mm. And I I wonder, you know, as we kind of round off our our, um, brief conversation on on Ed Gein, if uh, sort of on that note, Harold, you know, when you take away the, Documentaries, uh, you know, The True Crime, The Buffalo Bills, and The Norman Bates, and you look at the real Ed Gein, what would people see?
2: Well, you know, again, I mean, the thing about Gein was, you know, this incredible schizoid split. You know, the one hand, you know, he seems like this harmless farmer, kind of simple minded. I mean, he wasn't particularly simple minded, but, you know, a little bit of a neighborhood laughing stock. And, you know, and then, you know, in, in, in the solitude of this decaying farm, he was really enacting, you know, these archaic rituals. You know, of, you, know, I, I can, you know, somehow like, you know, the way the Aztecs, Aztec priests would garb themselves in the flayed skin of sacrificial victims. You, you know, the disjunction between the world he was inhabiting in the daylight and, and, and the kinds of, th- you know, uh, terrifying primitive rituals he was conducting in the isolation of his house, you know, that, that's to me what makes the, you know, the Gein case both unique and you know, appalling.
0: This episode of America, a history podcast was produced, edited and hosted by me, Liam Heffernan. A special thanks to my guests this week, Alex James and of course, Harold Schechter. And if you enjoyed the discussion, please check out some of the extra resources that we put in the show notes. And as always, a lot of work goes into this podcast. So if you can leave us a rating or review or follow us wherever you're listening, that would be great. next time I sit down for a more unscripted chat with Professor Tom Smith as we ask why do Americans love Halloween?